0: Uh, the service for us, and again, if you're visiting with us, maybe this is your first or second time here. Uh, you're most welcome. We're glad to glad you ha- have you among us. We're continuing our study uh, this morning in the life of David, and so if you have your Bibles, let's open them together to Second Samuel chapter seven, Old Testament book of Second Samuel chapter seven. We're going to begin in verse one. If you don't have a Bible it's printed for you uh, in your bulletin, so you can follow on, along there, if that'd be helpful. Um, Allow me in just the first few moments here before we get to our text to kind of summarize um, some things that we've talked about over the last two weeks. Um, Two weeks ago, we looked at this story, um, this occurrence where Uzzah, this Israelite, he he touched the Ark of the Covenant. And what happened to Uzzah? He died. He was immediately judged. He was struck struck down, and he died. And what we learn from that story is that, um, that God is against us, As a people. And if that's the message of that text, imagine if the Bible stopped right there. We would call that the bad news, right? We would say the scriptures aren't good news. We would say the scriptures are bad news. God is against us. But right, the story goes on, and what happens? The ark goes into the house of Obed Edom, it blesses him, it blesses his livestock, it blesses his farm, it blesses Israel. And then what happens, David and Israel take this ark with rejoicing and with singing up into the temple, up into the city of Jerusalem, right, that David has just secured, a very joyful, very happy moment, signaling, signaling what to us as readers? Though God could be against us, like he was with Uzzah, he's not against us. He's actually for us. He's a God who is for us and with us. And near to us. Well, the good news gets better in our text this morning. The message is not just that God is for us. What the passage is going to tell us um, this morning that we're looking at is that God is forever for us. In other words, if he's in your corner, if he's got your back, he is forever for you. Uh, and we need to hear that. Uh, let's go to our text together. Again, this is Second Samuel chapter seven. I'm going to begin in verse one. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now verse 22. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Again, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of my uh, favorite late night comedy sketches, bits, is, um, is one called Debbie Downer. Have you all seen this one? usually comes on Saturday nights. It's the actress who portrays this character, Debbie Downer, is, is Rachel Dratch, right? And here's, here's the premise of, of, of this skit, Debbie Downer, right? It usually starts in an environment that's meant to be joyful, that's meant to be happy. Um, birthday party, Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas morning, or Disney World, right? And not only is the environment happy, um, but the people are too, Right? Everyone except for Debbie Downer, right? She is this melancholy, myopic, sarcastic, cynical, glasses-half-full kind of character, right? And, and, and despite the fact that these, these places are joyful and despite the fact that most of these people are happy, all it takes is one Debbie Downer, right? Um, let me highlight one of, those, one of those skits for you. It's the one that takes place at Disney World, right? There's this family that comes down from Ohio, it's their first morning in the park. Um, they're at Mickey's Diner, and they're about to spend the whole day in Disney World. Everybody's excited. Everybody's joyful. Everybody's happy. Everyone except Debbie, right? And so Jimmy Fallon's character, right, he's one of the sons, in this family says, you know, I can't wait for breakfast this morning. I love me some steak and eggs. It's the special on the menu. He high-fives his brother across the table. <laughs> And then Debbie interjects, and here's what she says. She says to her brother, you know, ever since they found mad cow disease in the U.S., I'm not taking any chances, right? It can live in your body for years before it ravages the brain. And we laugh, and we say, you know, you're, you're in Disney World. You can't talk like that in Disney World, Right? conversation goes on. One of the other brothers speaks up and just says, man, I can't wait to get on the rides today. I'm going to do the elevator thing. He drops you straight down. Oh, yeah, I'm doing Space Mountain. Oh, yeah, I'm doing the train. Everybody's excited. Debbie interrupts, and here's what she says. She says, well, did you guys hear about the train explosion in Northern Korea? The media is so secretive there. They may ne- never know how many people actually perished. Right? Right? <laughs> Debbie Downer. And, and, you know, you, you don't want to over-diagnose over comedy because then it's not funny anymore. But why is, is this sketch, and why is this skit so funny? It's, it's because Debbie Downer is, is out of place. She does not belong in a place of happiness, in a place of joy, right? Debbie Downers can spoil Disney World. They can spoil Christmas morning. And, and the text that we're looking at this morning, it is a happy one. It is a joyful one. There's worshiping. There's clanging of cymbals, right? The people of God are very excited, and we say, why? Why are the people of God so joyful? And to put it simply, it's it's this. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God made these promises to a guy named Abraham, and these promises were not small. These promises were huge, promises like, I'm going to make you, Abraham, into a nation, You're going to be so big, you're going to outnumber the stars. Your enemies? I'm going to take care of that. You're going to need a constitution. I'm going to take care of that. And all of these grand promises are given to Abraham, right? And what we're seeing in our passage and in our text this morning is those promises that were given to him fulfilled. This is like the apex. This is the pinnacle of what was promised to Abraham. Now, David and Israel are beginning to enjoy, right? The king is now entering the city. Foes have been vanquished before them. Okay, they're not some wandering tribe now out in the wilderness. No, they've got people. They've got critical mass. And what's more is that they're bringing in the ark, the presence of God, into this city of Jerusalem, David's city. No more civil war. We're starting to see signs of peace since the time of the judges. Like, we're starting to get a taste of rest and peace like we've never seen before. And they're excited and they're happy. Now, let's pretend you're reading the Scriptures up until this point. And let's say you stop, you take your bookmark, you stick it right in here at the end of, of, of 2 Samuel chapter 7. You close it, turn off your lamp, and you roll over and you try to go to sleep. What are you thinking about at this point? Most readers at this point are going, man, there's a whole lot of Bible left, and things are looking really, really good for Israel, Right? There's a whole lot of text, a whole lot of scriptures that come after this passage, right? The inner Debbie Downer starts to well up, doesn't it? We start thinking, I mean, this is great and all, but how long is it going to last? Yeah, God's for you. God's for David. God's for Israel, but you know, but for how long, right? How long? Well, again, the good news of this passage is is God is going to answer that question for us in this text. It's Again, though he could be against you, not only is he for you, but he is forever for you. For eternity, he is in your corner. All right, where do we see that? Um, two points this morning uh, in this text. The first one's going to be very short. I want to spend more time on the second point. My two points are this. The story begins with a good idea, and then it ends with a better idea. Those are the two points. The good idea and the better idea. Well, what's the good idea in this passage. Well, the good idea comes from David. Look again at verses 2 and verses 3. What is David's plan? What does he suggest? Verse 2, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord God is with you. What's David's good idea? David's good idea is to build a house for God, right? And this is a good idea because David has been blessed. Israel has been protected. Its enemies have been dispersed, right? And what does David do? He does what any ordinary average human does when they've been blessed by God. He wants to reciprocate. He wants to bring God honor. He wants to thank Him. And David's looking at his environment going, man, I'm in this, this, this incredible house, and, and God is still in a tent. This, this should not be. God needs a house, Nathan agrees. Nathan says, go do all that is in your heart. This is a good idea. But God interjects, and God says, not yet. He doesn't say no. He doesn't reject the idea. He just says, not yet. Good idea, bad timing. Why is this the wrong time to build a house for God? Let me me put it simply. The God of the Scriptures, the God we worship, the God of David the God of Solomon. He's a God that does not rest until his people are at rest. Let me say that again. The God of David, the God of this church, is a God who does not rest until his people are at rest. That's how good he is. That's how kind he is. What happens in the chapter immediately following the one we're looking at today is David gets back on the warpath. He's got to take care of the rest of the Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites. He is still on a warpath. Right, They're experiencing peace, but it hasn't, it hasn't been perfect peace yet, right? Still some enemies out there. Still some foes to defeat. Now is not a time of rest. Now is not a time of peace just yet. And God says, I'm not going to rest. I'm not going to dwell in a house until my people are at peace. Now let that soak into your bones for just a minute. Is that the God you know? Is that the God of, of, of scriptures, of the scriptures that you've been taught? That is the work and that is the kindness of a great and merciful and gracious God. He is not going to rest until his people are at rest. The time of peace is coming with Solomon. That's the next kingdom. That's the next king. That's when he'll build his temple, but not yet. Why? Because his people are not at rest yet. That's in God's mind. So he says, no, not yet. Um, but, David, I'm going to call, I'm going to raise. You have a good idea. I have a better idea. What's God's better idea? Look with me again at verse 11, beginning with, Moreover, Moreover the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. On the front end, the good idea is this. David, David says, "Lord, I want to build you a house." God says, "Actually, no. The shoe is on the other foot. I'm, I'm actually going to build you a house." And what the Lord is talking about here is not bricks. He's not talking about mortar, like David was. He's talking about a dynasty, a kingdom, a legacy, an eternal throne. Not bricks and mortar. He, he's thinking the long game here. I'm going to make out of you, David, a house and a dynasty. And as we read this, um, this passage and the rest of this text, we want to know, well, what, what kind of house is this going to be that God's going to create, right? What we call this passage is the Davidic covenant, right? The covenant that was given to David. This is the covenant um, that immediately precedes the new covenant in Jesus Christ, right? There's been a covenant made with Adam. There's one with Noah. There's one with Abraham. There's one with Moses. And now we get to David, And so, again, like Abraham, these are going to be grand, huge, big promises. Nothing small here. Only big stuff. What what kind of house is Yahweh going to make for David? Well, I'm going to summarize this in, in, in two ways it's a house eternal and a house paternal. P A T, ernal. Right? House eternal and a house paternal. Fatherly, right? So. A house eternal. Where do we get that from this passage? Well, verse 13 and verse 16 use one word three different times in in speaking about this house to David. He says, this house, this dynasty, this kingdom will last forever, forever, forever. Just as God is eternal, he's saying, so will this house be David for you. Um, This house is so eternal, it is so sure, it is so forever forever, that even death cannot undo it. Did you see that here in the text? The Lord even says that. Look at uh, look at verse, excuse me, verse 12. Here what the Lord says to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And what? And I will establish his kingdom. In other words, death cannot annul this house. In any way, though David should perish and he will die and go the way of his fathers, this blessing is transferable, right? Solomon will get the same blessing and Jeroboam after it and so forth and so on. Again, this house is so forever and so sure, death can't annul it, but enemies can't destroy it and enemies can't overthrow it. Did you see that here in the text as well? Verses 10 and verses 11, starting halfway through verse 10. Hear it again. He says, So that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Right? This house is so sure, it's so forever, it's so eternal, enemies can't destroy it. And so when we get to this passage and these promises in this text, we we, we naturally ask, Well, did God follow through? Did he come through on these promises? Is David's house eternal? And again, we have to step out of our text, but when we look at the life and the work of Solomon, what does he do? What does the Lord say? He says, David, through your offspring, I will make my name great. Your offspring will be the one who builds my temple. And Solomon does that. He builds a grand temple, and the glory of, the God, of God fills it. And it's so bright... And it's so glorious um, that people will not see something like it again until Jesus and his transfiguration. Later in the New Testament, so glorious, so beautiful, right? And you read the story also in First Kings. There are other nations who come into Jerusalem to see Solomon, but not to wage war, right? Not to sack Jerusalem. Why does Queen Sheba come to Israel and Jerusalem? She wants to see this God of Israel. She wants to see this temple. And, and, and what does she do? She brings gifts. She leaves gold. She gives precious stones. She praises the God of Solomon, right? If enemies come, if other nations come to Jerusalem, it's not, it's not to sack. It's not to destroy. It's not to wage war. It's to bring gifts and to honor God. Did God come through for David and Solomon? We say, Absolutely. Not only is this house eternal, but this house is paternal. It's very fatherly, right? Uh, the first point is, is kind of like looking at it, at it from 50,000 feet. How, how long is, is this house and this kingdom going to be? It's, it's going to be forever. But let's zoom in. What is it going to feel like to be a part of this house? What are you going to experience? And, and two things here. You're going to experience the nearness of God and the correction of God. The nearness and the correction of uh, look back at verses 6 and 7. Um, notice what the Lord kind of says about his, his patterns, his habits with Israel. He says, I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people? Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? One of the hallmarks of Yahweh's lordship over his people has always been his nearness. Maybe it was a burning bush. Maybe it was a pillar of fire. Maybe it was the tabernacle, now the ark. And in Solomon days, it's going to be this temple. What he's saying is what has always been a hallmark of my lordship is going to continue forever. I'm the God who is going to be near and who's going to come close. In God's economy, geography is very important. He is the God who is near. Geography is very important for parents, for fathers, but but, but so is discipline, right? So is correction. He says this house is not going to be a house of lawlessness. It's not going to be a house where everything goes, nor is it going to be a house of cruelty. It's going to be a house of correction, right? Did you pick up on that? Look back at verses 14 and 15. Yahweh says to David, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. In other words, when we see what's been happening with Uzzah, and we see God's judgment. And when we see what God has done with Saul, withdrawing his, his steadfast love and kindness from Saul, what he's promising David and David's descendants is this, is not only am I going to be near, not only will I be close, but rather than rejection, rather than judgment, rather than removing my steadfast love, though I could, instead you will get discipline in its place. And that's so much better than judgment, Right? Never will I take my steadfast love from you like I did Saul. I will be forever for you. There will be correction, and it will sting, yes, but I'm forever for you. Now, again, the question for us is at, at this point is, is, did God follow through in, in the life of David, in the life of Solomon? Did we see some of these promises really coming to fruition? And again, the good news for us is, is absolutely And yes, and praise the Lord, right? What was the temple to be in this new covenant, in this new promise? This temple was supposed to be the place where God's glory lived, rested, was made manifest, right? That's why when Sheba came and she started to glorify God is because, man, God is here. The people are joyful. I've never seen servitude like this. I've never seen a kingdom like this. God promised nearness. He's there. His presence is in the temple. Well, what about correction? What about discipline? Don't want to get too much into this because this passage is is, is coming up. But what happens with Solomon when he takes too many wives? What happens with David when he commits adultery and he conspires to kill Uriah and he murders him? What does God do? Ah, kids. Kids will be kids, right? No, his house is, is, is not lawless, it's not a place where anything goes. Does he withdraw his loving kindness from David or from Solomon? No, he doesn't withdraw it like he did with Saul and Uzzah. What does he do? He corrects them with the rod and with the stripes of men. More on that later. David and Solomon actually got to see this coming into fruition in in their very lives, their very reign in Israel. But here's a question we have to address this morning in light of this. Historians in the room are finally going, okay, good. Good. I've got a question here, and I hope he answers it. What happens after about 400 years, right? This is a long kingdom, a long dynasty, right? Longer than the Egyptian dynasty, about 400 years. What happens at the end of 400 years? What does Babylon do? We spent last summer in the minor prophets. What does Babylon do? They come into Jerusalem, and they're not bringing offerings. They're not bringing gifts. They are bringing destruction. And they destroy Jerusalem. They make the temple nothing. And they cart off Israel and all of its people into foreign lands and make them slaves and captives again. And at this point, we're just going, what happened to forever? I thought you said this throne, this dynasty, this house was going to be forever and enemies can't destroy it. And God, you're going to be near. This sure doesn't sound like it. And man, this sure doesn't feel like it. Sounds like the Bible speaking out of both sides of its mouth. Well, consider this in light of that truth, because that's exactly what happens. Let's go back to Abraham for just one moment. Remember these grand, these big promises that were given to Abraham. Did he see those come to full fruition in his lifetime? Nope. He got to see some of the first fruits, right? He got to see his wife, his barren wife of old age, carry and deliver Isaac, he got to see some of the first fruits of this nation that was going to come from he and from his wife. He didn't get to see it all. He didn't get to see it in his glory days. He didn't get to see it at its pinnacle, at its apex, right? But he got to see first fruits. Who got to see the pinnacle? Who got to see the apex of the Abrahamic covenant? I would suggest to you this morning that it's David and the people of Israel in this passage, The promises of being a nation, enemies on their heels before you, a people, a formidable people, David and Israel at this stage in in redemptive history are enjoying the apex, the pinnacle of that promise, right? Even though it was made long ago to Abraham, we're talking about the Davidic covenant this morning. Where do we see the pinnacle and the apex of the Davidic covenant coming to fruition? Where do we see all of these promises being fulfilled? It's not David. It's not Solomon. And nor is it Jeroboam, the king after him. Where do we see the peak and the apex of what was promised David coming to fruition? David got to see some of the first fruits, yes. But where do we see these promises explode? It's in a person, It's not David. It's actually Jesus Christ. In other words, though Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed and God's people were carted off, our Father, who is our King, He did not forget His forever. He didn't forget. David got to see some first fruits. Solomon got to see some first fruits. But the peak... The pinnacle, when when these promises explode, it's not in their lifetime, it's in Jesus' lifetime. Consider this, why do Matthew and Luke spend so much time connecting Jesus to David? Is it historical curiosity? Like, let's just see if we can tie this back to somebody famous and, you know, make something out of this person that may not necessarily be there. No, what are they saying? This is David's greater son. And if God made these promises to David and to his house? Then should we not expect to see these fulfilled in David's greater son, Jesus Christ? Now, here is where I wish we could take another 30 minutes and just go, how does Jesus fully embody and communicate to us the Davidic covenant? Like, that's, that's my field day. That's where I get excited. I can only highlight two. There's like 11, all right? Let's just take two. There's, there's loads more. Uh, you can talk about these in your community group, but let's just take two. What about enemies? Remember what Yahweh promised David? I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. Remember in David's youth, whose head did David crush? Literally. He took a stone out of the river. He put it in his slingshot, threw it, and he crushed the head of Goliath, right? The strong man of the Philistines, right? This big guy. Little David, big Goliath crushes his head. And, and what do the Philistines do after they see uh, David, you know, crush Goliath and cut off his head? What do the rest of the Philistines do? They peace out. They leave. They're gone. And Israel gets to enjoy victory. Let me ask this question. Whose head, which enemy, did Jesus come to crush? Boy, there are a lot of people in the New Testament, they wish it was Rome they were hoping it would be caesar take us out of this oppression of rome and and caesar we're under their thumb but jesus knowing the full story he knows we have an enemy greater than caesar we have two great enemies we have the evil one right the devil himself and what's the promise we hear in genesis chapter 3 that that eve from you is going to come a man whose heel is going to be bruised because he's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to crush the head of the evil one. That's the enemy that he's going to take out. Paul will say later in one of his letters to uh, the Corinthian church, he'll say, the other enemy that Jesus came to destroy, the last enemy, it's not a person, but it's death. Paul says, death, where is your power? Where is your sting? Why? It's because Jesus conquered death. He was crucified, buried, and then on the third day through the power of the Holy Spirit, what happened? He was raised to new life. And he showed himself to the disciples. And he showed himself to the crowds. Is our enemy Rome, Caesar? No, it's death. And it's the evil one. Those are the strongest enemies we have. And Jesus came to conquer those on behalf of his people, on behalf of his tribe. Well, what about his, his nearness? Whew, it's a good one. What about his closeness? It's not fair for the Jews. It's not fair for the Hebrews, right? They got the Ark of the Covenant. They got to see it. They got the temple. They had the holiest of holies. They had the tabernacle, right? God was there. And in Solomon days, they had the, they had, you know, the temple and, and the glory that came down. You remember what Isaiah promises about this coming king, David's greater son? Do You remember the name that Isaiah gave him? He said, you will call his name what? Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? Or are we, are we too far gone from Christmas? What does Emmanuel mean? It means God, what? With us. Hebrews, they had their tent. Israel, they had their temple. What did the disciples get? What do first century believers get? They get God who's not just for you. They get God who's not just near you. They get God in the flesh. He's not just for you. He's with you. He is one of you. Look how near he comes to you. He enters your story. He becomes one of you. That's how near he is. And You might say, great, good for them they got to see jesus what about us how do we experience in this new covenant the nearness of god you remember what paul says um, later in the book of corinthians he's admonishing his hearers and he says do you not know that your body is a what pay close attention to this word he uses he doesn't use it haphazardly he says your body is a what a temple And what does this temple house? What dwells within this temple? He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? The disciples got God with us. You and I, what do we get? We get God in us. That's how near and that's how close he is. And so let's land the plane. If, if, If that is our king, and if he is truly David's greater son, and he's putting forth all of his effort to slay our worst of enemies, the evil one, death itself, he is near to us, he is close, he hasn't abandoned us. We don't get his judgment, nor is this the house of lawlessness. No, we get his discipline, but he'll never leave us, never withdraw his loving kindness from us. He dwells within us. If that's the case, then let's go back to Debbie Downer for a minute. Sometimes, in light of these great promises that we have in the new covenant of of Jesus Christ, even knowing them, even hearing them multiple times, we often live. Live life, we're waiting for the other shoe to fall. Have you heard that expression before? Like, yeah, this is great, but it, it's, you know, we, we act like Debbie Downer. Yeah, but we'll just see how long this lasts, right? We're spiritual pessimists. Our spiritual glass is half full. And if what the Gospels tell us is true about Jesus, if this is David's greater son, do you re- realize what's, what he's saying? He's saying there is no other shoe. The worst that could happen to you is never going to happen to you. He will never withdraw from you. Yes, we may be carted off. Yes, we may become slaves to another nation. But the worst thing that could happen to us is never going to happen to the people of God. This life may be difficult, yes. But the one that he is creating, this new Jerusalem, this new city of peace, you know what John says in, John, in, in Revelation chapter 21? He says, this city is, is so great, it's so perfect, its gates will never be shut. And what kind of a city never needs to shut its gates? It's a city and it's a people that have no enemies. You never have to shut your gate. You never have to keep it closed. That is what God is creating for his people Friends, there is no other shoe. Regardless of what happens in this political season, who takes office, yes, vote. And if your candidate does not take the White House, mourn. But do not despair. Why? Because we have a king who is sitting on his throne and who has promised us forever, what? His steadfast and loving kindness. Eternal protection from enemies. He ascended, and he is sitting right now on his throne. Do not despair. And I'm thinking about you, too, this morning. If, if the verdict on, on Jesus is, 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 is still out for you, you haven't made a decision yet on, 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 on whether to follow this guy or not, do I buy in or do I wait? Let me suggest this. In a lot of ways, um, in, in your life in particular, you are being ruled And Lorded over by something Something in your life is a king But would you do me a favor this morning Would you compare everything that rules you To the king that we just talked about Does anything compare To the king of the scriptures Though he could be against you He wants to be forever For you Yes there will be discipline Yes there will be hard times But guess what This isn't all there is And we don't have to live like this world is all there is The better one is coming. That one's eternal. And we get the nearness of Jesus again on his throne. He is offering that to you. And he says, come, follow me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Maybe you'll take him up on that this morning. Let's pray together. Father, our heart swells up like David. Um, We're thankful. You have fulfilled some great promises to Abraham, uh, to David. And there are still some promises yet to be fulfilled in your son, Jesus Christ. Um, We thank you for being a God who is true to your word. Thank you for being forever for us. Um, Would you help us? Would you make us humble? Would we ask you for help and belief and trust when we doubt? And would we look to you as our King, the one who is our great protector, our preserver of life. And would you give us faith in yourself so that, like David, we could boast and give great thanks, honor you and praise you, um, not just today, but all the days of our life. Would you make it so in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.